Would you please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 19? If we don't have enough difficult things going on right now in our world and in our church, we've got a really difficult passage um, in front of us this morning. Difficult for a couple of reasons. For starters, it is on the topic of divorce, and divorce is sometimes difficult to understand, or at least it doesn't sometimes seem to address the questions that we specifically are asking. But the difficulty with the topic of divorce is not only theological or theoretical. The difficulty with divorce is personal. I don't have to go to the internet to draw a bunch of statistics this morning to demonstrate to you that divorce is a problem in our culture and even in the church. You know it firsthand. There is really not anybody in this room this morning that hasn't been affected negatively in some way by divorce. That's why it's difficult. It's not just the theological difficulties. It's the personal difficulties. I want to confess at the outset of the sermon that my small contribution to the topic of divorce will not provide all of the answers to your questions on this topic. And it won't bring all of the comfort that you need. Even after a fair amount of study, I still have a lot of questions myself. I will do my best to explain what Jesus is teaching about divorce from Matthew 19, but I know I will not iron out all of the wrinkles for you. So if you find yourself at the end of this sermon wanting more on this topic, still having questions, I would be happy to visit with you. I'd be happy to point you to some resources that may be of help. But for now, I would like to ask you to do your best this morning to allow Jesus in Matthew 19 to set the agenda for this discussion and for us to listen to what he actually has to say instead of being so distracted by what he doesn't say that we don't hear what he is saying. This passage is organized around three questions. The Pharisees begin by asking him if it's lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason. Then they ask him why Moses commands one to give a certificate of divorce. And then finally, his disciples ask him if it would be better to not marry at all. Notice as we read this passage that he doesn't initially answer directly any of their questions. Jordan Green calls this the Jesus juke. The answers he gives seem evasive. They're certainly unexpected. And I believe what they are doing is reframing the discussion. And this reminds me that sometimes we don't bring, is it okay to confess this? That we don't always bring the right questions to a topic 
of study. We need to allow Jesus not only to provide answers for us, but sometimes to provide the right questions for us. For Him to establish our priorities and the emphasis. So if we could, keep this in mind as we read this morning. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I'll be reading Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. So he has just spoken on a number of things, um, including the importance of forgiveness. And then we're told that when he had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My sermon this morning will follow the three questions that the Pharisees and the disciples asked Jesus and the answers that he gives. We're going to deal with three things. For one, First, the plan for marriage. Second, the permissibility of divorce. And third, the possibility of singleness. Plan for marriage, permissibility of divorce, and the possibility of singleness. Let's begin with the plan for marriage. The first question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus is in verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. To understand what's behind this question, we need to back up a bit and consider the context. Specifically, the biblical context and the historical context of this question. Otherwise, I don't think we'll adequately understand what's going on. The biblical context is Deuteronomy 24 you want, you can turn there. Deuteronomy 24. This is the main passage in the Old Testament that deals with divorce legislation. This is what 
it says in the first four verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There's a lot in this passage, but if we were to boil it down to the basic point, that point would be simply that a man can't remarry a woman that he's divorced if there has been an intervening marriage. As Mike Andrus says, there are no musical chairs in marriage. I believe this passage is also about protecting women in a culture where men have all of the muscle when it comes to marriage and divorce. If a man is going to divorce his wife, this passage says they have to give her a certificate of divorce, which allowed a woman to get married again so that she wouldn't be left out in the cold without any food, clothing, or shelter. Deuteronomy 24 also prohibits a man protecting the woman from taking his ex-wife back whenever he wants to. So this passage in Deuteronomy 24, which is the basis of the discussion in Matthew 19, it is important to note is not encouraging divorce. It's not even explicitly permitting divorce. It is simply acknowledging that divorce happens and prohibiting a remarriage when there's been an intervening marriage and it's making provisions specifically for women when a divorce takes place. That's the biblical context. Now for the historical context. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were making way more out of this passage or way less, than was originally intended. They weren't treating it rightly. There were basically two schools of thought about Deuteronomy 24. There was the more liberal school of thought, which is called the Halil school, that taught that a man could initiate a divorce with his wife for any cause. Any cause. Anything that his wife did to displease him could be grounds for divorce. Even if she burnt his toast, he could leave her. I mean, literally, if you read, if you read the writings on the Halil thought, that kind of thing is mentioned in there. This was probably the majority view in Jesus' day, and the basis of the question in verse three is: It lawful to divorce one's wife for any? cause. 
The other school was the Shammai school. And they thought that divorce was permitted only in the case of sexual immorality. We see something similar in our day. We live in a culture where no-fault divorce is widely accepted. As Mike said in his sermon on this, there was a legislator in Michigan who once said, it's easier to divorce your wife than it is to fire an employee. But this permissive view of divorce is not only prevalent in the culture at large, it's even common in the church. Think of the reasons that people even in the church largely get divorced. They're not happy. They feel incompatible. They have irreconcilable differences. A pretty permissive view is pervasive in our culture and in the church. But there are others who hold to a very narrow view of divorce. A view that says that divorce is actually a myth. Or that it's not permitted at all. Or that it is only permitted in the case of adultery. What does Jesus have to say about this? When is divorce permissible? Is it for any cause or for no cause? Or something in the middle? Jesus' answer to this question shows that it's the wrong question. Or at least it's not the first question that we should be asking. His answer takes the discussion in a different direction. He says we shouldn't start with the topic of divorce. We should start with marriage. What is God's plan for marriage? And this is what Jesus teaches. That God's plan for marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. God's plan for marriage is that it is a lifelong union of one man and one woman. In verse 4, He answers their question with His own question. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He's basically saying, you're arguing from the footnotes. Have you not read the introduction to the book that lays out the purpose and the plan for the whole thing? Start with the creation account. And you will come to understand the heart of the issue that God created marriage. That in and of itself is a weighty truth. And in marriage, God unites one man and one woman into one flesh. Jesus draws the logical conclusion when He says, what therefore God has joined, let no man separate. Marriage, in other words, is meant for life. It's not meant to be broken up. There was, in other words, no divorce clause. No prenuptial agreement in the original creation 
plan for marriage. This is critical. The basic point here is that we must go back to the beginning if we want to discern the end for which marriage was created. We must go back to creation to find the purpose in marriage. The intention for marriage is way more important than any concession for divorce. We must put first things first. And that must not only be first in our thinking, but dominant in our thinking. But the Pharisees are not content with this answer. Many of us are not either. And so they press on to their second question. This leads us from God's plan for marriage to what I would call qualified permission to divorce. In light of verse 7, they ask their question, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? I've already explained what I believe Moses is saying, or what the law is saying in verse uh, in Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus could have reiterated some of those reasons for the divorce certificate here in his answer to the Pharisees. But again, he moves beyond the surface issues, beyond the technical issues, and he goes to the heart of the issue, or more specifically, to heart issues. He says this, it's because of the hardness of your heart. That's interesting. Speaking in the present, referring back to something that Moses legislated a long time ago, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. His answer teaches that God permits divorce in some cases because of our hard hearts. There's two critical things to see in this point on the screen, but as well as in Jesus' response. First of all, it's subtle, but it's there. God never commanded divorce. He never commanded divorce. The Pharisees read Deuteronomy 24 wrongly. God permitted divorce in some cases, and He commanded that when there was a divorce, it needed to be accompanied by a certificate of divorce. But the only reason that God ever even permitted divorce was because of hard-heartedness. It was because of sin. There was no divorce before there was sin. There was no divorce before the fall. What is this hard-heartedness, hard-heartedness that Jesus is speaking of here? I think fundamentally it is speaking of our rebellion towards God. You see throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, this notion of being hard-hearted, and it normally applies to God, of being hard-hearted towards His Word. His instruction of not living according to what He has laid out and what He has intended. All divorce comes on the heels of sin, of not 
living in a way that God wants us to live. Of not loving our wives as Christ loved the church. Of wives not respecting their husbands. Of husbands not living with their wives in an understanding and gentle way. Of adultery. Of neglect. You name it. Was there ever a divorce that didn't have some sin upstream? They all do. When it comes to the topic of divorce, the point I want to make, the point I think Jesus is making, is that we shouldn't start with whether or not it's permitted. We should start with what God intended and then realize that all broken marriages are a result of us not living according to the way that God intended. They all are a result of our sin and that should cause us to grieve. The hard-heartedness may be applied to divorce in this passage in one of two ways. One way would be to think about the context in the end of chapter 18. What's it about? Forgiveness. Almost this unlimited level of forgiveness. So maybe hard-heartedness is referring to a person who's unwilling to forgive their spouse and says, forget you. I'm out of here. But maybe hard-heartedness could also be somebody who will never repent of their sin in a marriage and they just keep sinning against the other person. That could be an example of hard-heartedness. Regardless, it is sin that is always upstream of a divorce. And these first two points are the foundation of Jesus' teaching and we have to bear them in mind. This is what He wants us to focus on when we come to the topic. He's reframed the whole discussion. The most important thing to remember is God's plan. Next, we need to remember that sin is the reason for all brokenness. And this, I think, implies a couple of applications for us. When it comes to struggles in our marriages, Jesus wants to see the sin in it. And He wants us to repent. If you're in a marriage that is struggling right now, I'm confident that God wants you today to remember the purpose of your marriage, to see your own sin in your marriage, which we all have, and to repent of that. I'm also confident that He wants you to forgive your spouse if they have sinned against you. We forgive because we have been forgiven. God wants us to live in light of His design for marriage. He doesn't want us hunting for loopholes so that we can find a way out. But with that said, even though Jesus wants to reprioritize, reframe the discussion with all that has been said so far, eventually in verse 9, He does get around to answering the question of the Pharisees and some of the questions we have. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another 
commits adultery. What is he saying here? At the most basic level, I think he's clearly rejecting this any cause divorce perspective that was prevalent in his day and is prevalent in our day as well. But he doesn't say that there are never grounds for divorce. He doesn't say that there are not some valid reasons for divorce. He says that a person may divorce their spouse in the case of sexual immorality. The word in Greek is porneia. It's where we get our word for pornography, but it's not specifically speaking of pornography. It's a broad term. can refer to all kinds of sexual sin, to adultery, bestiality, incest, homosexuality, It's not real specific. But it is some type of sexual sin that violates the one flesh union of marriage. Now with that said, I want to go back to what I mentioned earlier. I do not believe that sexual immorality automatically ends a marriage and it doesn't require divorce. I think repentance and forgiveness is always the best option even when there's been sexual immorality. And there are many examples of marriages, even in this church, that have been put back together, healed, even on the heels of something like adultery. But where sexual immorality persists, Jesus does seem to permit divorce as a valid option And therefore, I think the way his teaching works, I think the way the teaching worked in Deuteronomy 24 is that if there is a valid ground for divorce, it follows that there is also a valid ground for remarriage of the person who was the victim of the sexual immorality. However, Jesus goes on to say that if a person divorces without biblical grounds and then subsequently remarries, which is what most people do when they're divorced, he says they are committing adultery. Presumably because the marriage has not actually been terminated in God's sight because it has not taken place on valid grounds. This should give us serious pause before we consider divorce for unbiblical reasons. If God's purpose for marriage is not enough to motivate us, if His acknowledgement that all of this is a result of sin is not enough to motivate us, this statement should cause us to set up and pay attention that all divorces or remarriages that come on the heels of an invalid divorce are adultery. This is weighty stuff. It's not casual. At the beginning of my sermon, I was clear that I wouldn't address all of your questions on this topic. I said my main goal was for Jesus to set the agenda for our treatment of divorce. But at this point, I feel that I need to ask a reasonable question that many of you have. 
And that is, are there other valid reasons for divorce? We've seen that Jesus doesn't require, but permits divorce where there has been sexual immorality. But are there other valid reasons? I believe that there may be. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul lays out potentially two more valid reasons for divorce. Pastor Mike has dealt with these in greater depth than I am able to this morning in a paper that's been read pretty widely in this church, helpful to us as well as in our denomination at large. I will post it in a footnote on the written copy of my sermon on the website and you can consult that if you would like more. I simply don't have time to elaborate the good work that he's done. But let me highlight two possible exceptions in 1 Corinthians 7. The first is one that I hear people talking about all the time in the church, but I actually think it is an exception that rarely applies to us. It is what's called the desertion exception. But I believe what Paul is teaching here is a rare circumstance where two unbelievers are married before they are believers, and then one of the people in that marriage then becomes a Christian, and the non-believer no longer wants to be married to the believer because they're a believer. They despise the thought of being married to a Christian, and so therefore they say, I'm out of here, or you get out of here. They separate from them. And this is what Paul says to this. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound, or they are not enslaved. They are not, no longer required to stay in that marriage, is what I believe he is saying there. Again, that's a very rare circumstance. The second exception is much more controversial, but I believe that it is worth mentioning. In verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Mike says that Paul here is obviously reiterating the fact that we shouldn't divorce. But Paul also seems to be permitting a person the right to divorce even if sexual immorality or desertion by an unbeliever has not taken place, so long as they are willing to remain unmarried. I think, and I'm wrestling with these issues, but I think this may apply to situations where there has been prolonged physical or emotional abuse or significant neglect. This is the way Mike puts it, and I find it helpful. He says, There are some cases where the marriage has become so degrading to one spouse that he or she is willing to choose a life of celibacy as an alternative 
to staying in the marriage. Mike uses an illustration that his father used before him that comes from the theologian Lorraine Beatner. This is what it says. We may have on our parlor table a beautiful and costly vase. It ought to be handled carefully. It ought not to be broken. It was not made to be smashed. It was made to be a thing of beauty and grace. But it is not impossible to break it. And if the member of the family breaks it through carelessness or in a fit of temper, smashes it deliberately, there is nothing to do but sweep up the broken fragments and dispose of them. We will not say this vase was not intended to be broken, therefore it is impossible to break it. Therefore, in spite of the fact that it lies in shattered fragments on the floor, we will not throw it away. We will keep it forever. No one would say that about a broken vase. Yet that is substantially the argument for those who say that the marriage bond is unbreakable. Clearly, marriage should not be broken. But we have seen at least two, maybe a third example of where marriages are broken. Something to grieve. I'm somewhat hesitant to bring up this last exception for divorce because it's so important to me to not fall into the same error that those in the first century did, which is to be looking for loopholes in God's clear command to not end marriage and divorce, or to be so prone to spend our time focused on the exception clauses that we miss the main intention for marriage. But I do think that Jesus clearly gives a valid reason for divorce, and Paul gives at least one as well. And so I felt that I'd be remiss to not spend a little bit of time focusing on this. But now I must move on to the third question in our passage. We've learned about God's plan for marriage, the very few cases where God permits divorce. Now we turn to the possibility of singleness. In light of Jesus' teaching on divorce, His disciples ask Him a question. It's actually not a question it's a statement but Jesus treats it like it's a question this is what they say in verse 10 if such is the case with a man with his wife it is better not to marry it's almost a joke it's as if they're saying if there's no escape clause in marriage then I don't want to sign up I say that it's a joke because in that day it would be unheard of for a person to not pursue marriage. But again, Jesus gives a surprising answer. He takes their joke seriously and says, I think this is what he's saying, that singleness is a real possibility for the sake of the kingdom. Singleness is a real possibility for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus says not everybody can receive this saying that the disciples said, that it is better not to marry, but only those to whom it is given. 
This is very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 about singleness. He said that some had been given the gift of singleness for the sake of pursuing the things of the Lord. Jesus uses the examples of eunuchs. Eunuchs do not have the ability to conceive, and so in that culture, they certainly would not have been married and they wouldn't have had children. He says some are born this way. Others are made eunuchs, but some make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Now, he's not talking about a person voluntarily castrating themselves. Some people have actually thought that that's what he's saying. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think he's talking about choosing a life of singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Choosing singleness so that you can free yourselves from the concerns of family life, which the second you sign up for marriage, there are many concerns with family life, to be able to deliberately and intentionally focus on the advancement of the kingdom. This will not be, Jesus says, and Paul says something similar, an option for most people, but it's an important clarification in the topic of divorce and remarriage. The entirety of this discussion in chapters 18 and 19 has been all about the kingdom. Have you, it, it's easy to lose sight of that when we get in the particulars of a teaching. But this has all been about how we live as citizens of the kingdom in community together, in relationship together. Chapter 18 talks about what it looks like to live as a church family, as citizens of the kingdom in the church family. We are called to be humble toward one another. We are called to forgive one another. In chapter 19, he turns to see what living as citizens of the kingdom looks like in your own family, and specifically in marriage. And he's saying, you should love your spouse all the way to the end. This is kingdom living. The kingdom is the priority. And I think that's what these last couple of verses in our passage are highlighting. It's the main thing. It's the thing that Jesus is emphasizing. People who treasure the kingdom of heaven, who see their life in Christ and what God is doing to make all things new in this world. They see that as a treasure that is worth sacrificing all kinds of things for. You can give up, as we learned last week and the week before, the right to be right because you know that the kingdom is of more value than all of that. You can forgive others as Jesus has forgiven you. You can give up the cultural norm or the desire in your heart to jump ship on your marriage when it gets hard and instead choose to love your spouse all the way to the end. And some will even give up the prospect of being married for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The priority of the kingdom is what must inform 
everything we do in our life. That's what these verses are teaching. And remember that this whole discussion is framed with three predictions that Jesus is going where? To the cross. The point seems to be that Jesus laid down His life for us. Doesn't it make sense that we would deny ourselves, which is at the heart of this whole marriage discussion, and take up our cross and follow after Him for the sake of the kingdom? Would you pray with me? Father, we need Your help. I know that there are many thoughts going through people's mind as we think about this difficult topic of divorce. Some have experienced divorce themselves. And they're hurting from that. And I just pray that they would be reminded of the grace of the Gospel this morning. That You are a God who brings healing, who brings forgiveness to those of us who repent of our sins and look to Christ in faith. Others are struggling in difficult marriages, wondering what to do, wondering how they can go on, I pray for Your miraculous work in their lives. That You would bring healing. That You would grant them the ability to repent of their sin. To forgive others. We desire to reflect Your hallowed name in the church and in our families. To give You glory. And we know that that cannot happen if we're living outside of Your will for us. And so help us to align our hearts and to align our lives with Your kingdom priorities. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.